It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a great one in store today. Uh, the uh, author of um, American Schism, Seth David Radwell, will be joining the roundtable. Today is Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics is coming up in about an hour. For our weekly roundtable with roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. And of course, as I mentioned, they'll be joined by Seth Radwell for today's roundtable discussion. Now, starting out this morning, I uh, was really looking forward to an interview. And again, this is one of those welcome to live radio moments. Um, I had scheduled and and was looking forward to a conversation with economist Emmanuel Hines. He's the former Minister of Finance to the government of El Salvador and author of a new book uh, called In Defense of Liberal Democracy, What We Need to Do to Heal a Divided America. Now, for some reason, the number I had, uh, it's an international number, and it, it didn't connect. So I'm, I'm hoping to get that straightened out and perhaps... Uh, reschedule because I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, conversation. But in the meantime, I did have a conversation just recently with uh, a man named David Bonson who has uh, 
written a book. Let me see if I can uh, track down the title quickly. Oh yeah, it's I should have remembered uh, very easily. It's called No Free Lunch. And uh, what I'll I'll do is um, that interview hasn't aired yet, so this uh, may be as good a time as any. Um, pretty conservative guy, but uh, but we'll talk with uh, David Bonson uh, coming up in uh, in just a moment or so. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my uh, guest this hour is the uh, founder and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group and uh, the author of a new book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. And David joins me by phone. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't usually start out with quotes, but but I will in this case. Uh, Ben Shapiro from the Daily Wire says uh, that you are a vital voice in a time of complete economic chaos. Do you think we're in complete economic chaos, David? I think that in terms of economic thinking, it's gotten to be quite chaotic. I do. I think a lot of the economic circumstances... Um, are more volatile than they are chaotic, but they are headed in a, in a worse direction. And, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is to, to try to clarify some of the economic thinking that I think is needed as we go forward and try to advance our economy for greater prosperity. And the title of the book, There's No Free Lunch, um, that's that's one of those things I've been hearing since I was a kid, and um, and it's it's right alongside um, uh, the the phrase it takes money to make money. Um, are are those economic truths, or are you talking about different economic truths in your book? Well, the irony of there's no free lunch is that it sort of encapsulates a number of economic truths. Um, there's no free lunch is meant to refer to the law of economics that talks about trade-offs, that when you're dealing with scarce resources in an economy, uh, there's no free lunch, meaning uh, one can't have it all. Sometimes people have to pick, do I want to hold on to some money and have a little more on my savings account, or do I want the enjoyment of this vacation? And, and um, others may say, I'm running a business. Do I want to maybe potentially have more customers by having a nicer offering up front, or do I want to save the, the money on what a nicer lobby would cost? And, and, and so the, there's no free lunch refers to the reality we all deal with every day, but we don't have to think about it. It's so embedded into the laws of nature that there are trade-offs that we not only don't think about it, we accept it. But where people all of a sudden magically stop accepting it is when they craft economic policy and they want to pretend as if one can have it all. Uh, that, that kind of forgetfulness about the reality of trade-offs is where I think there's no free lunch comes from. Is there a connection between economic truths and economic reality? 
between economic truths and economic reality. Well, ultimately, um, yeah, economic uh, reality has to do with what is playing out in the uh, human action and the affairs of a society. And economic truths, I believe, are the principles that sort of serve as um, what ought to be the foundation. And so I, I suppose you could say that uh, economic truths deal with what ought to be and economic reality deals with what is. Um, the old Wall Street Journal writer, Jude Winiski, wrote his book on economics, The Way the World Works. And what he was getting at was that when we talk about incentives, when we talk about a lot of these free market principles that I talk about, all we're doing is talking about the way the world works. It was descriptive. This is reality, whether people accept it or not. And that's a lot of what I'm getting out of my book is bringing back to foundational truths that we need to implement into our thinking about economics. Um, you know, Mark Twain had a, a, a quote that I'm especially fond of, says, uh, if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. Yeah. When you, in, in your book, David, you talk about two different uh, leading trends in economics. Um, one being a movement toward greater collectivism and the other one that seems to be uh, sort of um, people that are just, apathetic and complacent and, and maybe have just given up? Yeah, I think that there is, unfortunately, uh, two different errors that I'm primarily concerned about. And there, one is the error towards a more socialistic and collectivist and interventionist view of the economy. And then, and then one is often um, even from folks on the right that uh, tend to be frustrated with certain things happening in the culture and be a little less concerned with maintaining certain economic principles and instead have moved into a bit of uh, uh, class envy um, uh, ideology, more protectionist, and believing that uh, maybe the state can play a big role in, in uh, driving the affairs of man. And my view is not really very political in this case. It's more referring to the economic uh, lessons about free exchange, about humans interacting with one another, about the spontaneous order uh, in a society that enables maximum social cooperation. And, and I think that both forces on the right and left are at risk of getting this really wrong right now. Would you characterize yourself as uh, the ultimate free marketer? Um, well, I do believe I am a uh, passionate free marketer. But some by that do mean um, something very libertarian, sometimes very secular, very humanistic. Uh, my belief about being an ultimate free marketer is still rooted in very strong transcendent truth commitments. I do believe mankind was made in the image of God, and I do believe that uh, ultimately the best aspirations of a free market don't work apart from a virtuous uh, society. Uh, um, I have more of a Burkean vision, uh, the famous political philosopher Edmund Burke, that I want to see manners and civility and morals married to the market principles of free exchange, 
the optimal allocation of resources that I think free markets represent. So if that makes me an ultimate free marketer, I'll take it. Is Burkean the opposite of Keynesian? No, um, I think that it is very different than Keynesian, but I think that uh, Hayekian, Friedrich Hayek, um, would be more the opposite of Keynesian because that gets into specific views about central planning in the economy, uh, which would have been Keynes's great legacy and, and one, of course, I disagree with, and Hayek, who, who believed in more of a free society. So they were at more direct odds. Burke would be closer to Hayek than Keynes, but Burke's unique proposition to modern discussion has more to do with where um, civil society, the need for mediating institutions, the need for strong morals in the people come from. So I see Burke complementing Hayek, but both of them being pretty strongly opposed to Keynes. How did the Industrial Revolution and manufacturing change the economy, and how has it changed as it has evolved into more of a service economy? Well, when the Industrial Revolution initially happened, you had an explosion in GDP growth in every developed nation on Earth. Uh, the U.S., Western Europe, um, Japan at the time was more limited in that. Um, and yet there was nothing comparable to what took place in the U.S., so the technology, the progress was basically the same everywhere, but its impact in economic growth was greatest in the U.S. And I argue the reason is that we were the society most set structurally for free exchange, for free enterprise, had the least regulation, the least taxation. So there was, there was sort of a, a fertile soil when the Industrial Revolution came that gave us more leverage in implementing it. Now, as we go into a service economy, a lot of the same principles are at play, but the forum has changed. A lot of the economic growth comes from different technologies, different products, different industries, but the principles of allowing innovation, uh, allowing creativity to flourish, I think those principles are still very similar. More with wealth management expert and author David Bonson, straight ahead. The Tom Sumner Program.com Old Fashioned Radio For a new generation The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with wealth management expert and author David Bonson, straight ahead. Now that we see technology um, growing almost exponentially and discussion of of robots and artificial intelligence, um, is there going to be a need to re-examine how the free market works if, if, if most jobs that can be done by humans are replaced by machines? Well, this is one of my favorite subjects because I believe that we have been, this is not a new thing. This is a 50-year-old thing that for 50 years we've been living through a period of greater automation, greater technology, greater computerization, greater digitalization. And what has happened over the last 50 years? 65 million new jobs created. Now, if some of those been what Schumpeter called creative destruction, some jobs and sectors went away um, and had to kind of give way to new jobs and sectors. Yes, that's happened. And sometimes those things can be very painful to an uh, individual family or, or community. But ultimately, I don't see any evidence that the progress of technology and including greater efficiencies made possible by digital tools leads to job destruction. I think it leads to job transformation. And one of the things I argue in the book is that if someone is looking for a uh, tool in the job market that cannot be commoditized away, cannot be digitized away, cannot be automated, those, the answer is in character and virtue. Every employer wants character. Every employer wants integrity. So um, I think that Market forces are going to create a transformation out of more digital realities, and yet the more evergreen principle remains that virtue cannot be uh, automated away. I, I hold a lot of faith in those two principles simultaneously being true. Um, David, would you compare the creative destruction going on in the wake of, of new developing technologies currently similar to that that the world experienced during industrialization? I think it's almost identical. I absolutely would compare it. And I think I think that um, the principles that we learned there ought to be very helpful to us now, that I think uh, there are, uh, on a bottom-up basis, people who suffer. There are, are unfortunate things, um, and, and I don't believe one of the solutions can be to try to make people drive a horse and buggy forever. I think that we have to embrace technology, embrace progress, uh, let market forces determine the preferences and tastes of consumers, and yet at the same time, um, make things better for people who are suffering by advocating greater retraining, greater resources, um, you know, expanding their wings, not trying to protect an obsolete industry, but rather encourage um, the job skills that are necessary around new industries. And this is a societal lesson that um, you would like to think we had learned in history. It looks like we have to relearn it again. But I think both <laughs> morally and economically, it's extremely important. I think you could say the same thing about COVID-19. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we went through that with the Spanish flu, and, you know, now here it is 100 years later, and we're still struggling with the same issues. 
Yes, there's sort of a, a principle of nothing new under the sun, and, and it seems to rear its ugly head quite frequently. David, there are some economists, probably not many, but others who claim to watch the economy. And, I, and I'm thinking of Andrew Yang as one example that's fairly high profile um, that have talked about this this concern that this this uh, creative destruction um, was going to be so significant and leave so many people unable to transition that it would call for a universal basic income. Is that are are they just completely on the wrong road? Well, they are, and and I do understand the instinct of where it comes from, and I've kind of already said my economic criticism that I don't think the idea of um, making people uh, have to retrain their their job skills should be resisted. I think that it's it's an uh, important part of, of reality in our society. But um, even apart from my disagreement with his diagnosis, I'm incredibly disagreeable to solution, but for an entirely different reason. If someone wants to make the argument we can't afford it, I would agree. If someone wants to make the argument that it's a big redistribution of wealth and that that's wrong, I would agree. But fundamentally, my biggest argument is that it's dehumanizing to the people that we're giving it to. Um, people are not meant to live off of the largesse of others. I think that people are made with incredible creative and productive capacity. And to tell somebody you need to become a ward of the state to have your basic needs met and that there are some people in society that are capable of really great things and you're capable of only small things or perhaps no nothing, um, I think is, is immoral. I think it's materialistic and I think it is... Uh, ultimately missing the point of what really feeds the soul of humanity, which is earned success, which is purpose, which is activity, um, which is the feeling of achievement that comes from uh, being productive. And, and so universal basic income to me is the wrong solution to a wrongly diagnosed problem. And, and I'm bringing that up as an example of, of something I touched on earlier, and that's about whether or not changes in in the way we're able to get things done require a rethink of the economy. I wasn't bringing it up to suggest it as the answer, but one of the answers that's been put out there. I just wanted to make you know, that Yeah, clear. it's definitely been put out there. And, and in, you mentioned Andrew Yang is more of a, a popular advocate. Um, so it has more, uh, shall we say, broad appeal now than it used to. Um, ultimately, there are a lot of different arguments that people make against it, and I think all of those arguments um, I'm sympathetic to. I don't think we can afford it. I don't think redistribution is a solution. Um, yet, even apart from the sort of societal transfer payment problem that universal basic income intrinsically is, um, my biggest argument against it is the anthropological one. It's that I don't think humans were made uh, to merely be beneficiaries of others. I think that ultimately what we ought to do is encourage the risk-reward system of free markets that encourages all people to live up to their own productive capacity. How has the, the pandemic impacted um, 
basically uh, the economy and and the way everyday people deal with it and the way the government has dealt with it um, because it has done exactly what you're suggesting the UBI would do and had people sitting at home collecting checks. Yeah, I, I think that the COVID pandemic has allowed for the worst of all thinking to come out. And, and um, those who were prone to believe that the central bank, the Fed, should be the arbiter of our problems um, have had a chance to double down. Those who believe that Washington, D.C. should be the solution have had a chance to double down. Those who you know, have a certain class of society they want to blame have had a chance. Um, there is a, a tremendous, in my mind, policy error uh, that has actually exacerbated some of those tensions and some of those resentments. There's no question that the policy response to COVID was almost entirely benign to upper-class people and was horrific to those of lesser economic opportunity, and I think it's immoral. Um, some, some aspects of COVID were unavoidable, um, but I, no, I think that the policy responses, the notion of, of large increase of national debt, um, the, the, the Fed response that has allowed asset prices to boost higher, even as real wages have not, these are things, these are things that are making problems we already had worse. They're not making them better. You know, I, I, I hear politicians talking all the time of course you know they're always promising that they're gonna you know bring more jobs to an area they're campaigning in and you know that that things are going to get better on their watch and and all of that kind of stuff but one of the things that i keep hearing is that the economy is doing great and and reports about what's happening on wall street and with uh, the stock market seems to be all positive but when i hear people say you know the economy's doing great i can't help hearing this little voice in the back of my head saying well not in my neighborhood and it's often the case that there may be certain communities geographically that are doing well in an economic time and other communities that are not um, but in this particular case, I think the divide is not so much one community uh, or part of the country versus another, but it is more one class versus another, that where there is a heavy ability um, to function on digital work, remote work, uh, where one is largely driven with asset prices, so the stock market and real estate, uh, there, there has been very little economic disruption and the economic data all looks quite positive, but in communities that um, had a, uh, what we, I called during COVID, people who were uniformed to work, um, they, they were sort of the forgotten class during the COVID moment, and it's something I will eternally be critical of in our policy response. Uh, there, there was an article in the New York Times that I'm never going to forget um, that went through and identified certain zip codes where they said, you, you're, you're where the COVID spread is and the numbers, we really think you, you need to be ordering your food, have food delivered because it's a higher risk area. Don't be going out, have the food delivered. And then I thought, who do they think is going to deliver that food? 
So what they were basically implying was you're in a good enough area, has a COVID spread, but you, you can afford for food delivery to come and, and so forth. But then, yeah, we'll just have these lower class people. They can take all the risk. You know, they can get on their bikes and go deliver the food. Um, I, I, I never understood exactly where they thought that labor would come from when they were telling folks to not go out in society and patronize restaurants and coffee shops. At the end of the day, um, there, there's no question that, that some parts of the economy have responded okay to the COVID moment and some parts of the economy were decimated. And I think it's a failure of policy. Um, circling back to um, creative destruction, which simply means that as, as technology evolves and, and what skills are required in the marketplace change, doesn't that widen the divide between the haves and the have-nots? And is that a problem? And and how how would you uh, um, chart a path to uh, better success for people on the lower end of that? Well, I do believe that we have got to focus on economic growth and not focus on um, economic equality. And what I mean by this is not that I'm against equality. I don't really even know what it means. I always tell people, I, I lecture on this subject, if we divided all the money up in the world, every dollar, uh, evenly, to every person on earth tomorrow, it would take about five minutes for there to be inequality again. <laughs> That instantly people's decisions, people's taste, people's, you know, what market prices would, would do would uh, immediately alter that quote-unquote equality. And, and so I just simply want a higher quality of life for all people. I care about the human person. And if uh, Roger uh, goes from one place in life to a higher place, has greater uh, uh, amenities, greater comforts, greater luxuries, greater health care, greater quality of life, and yet Bill um, goes to an even higher place at a faster pace, I'm not as concerned about the delta between Roger and Bill as I am that both Roger and Bill are enjoying a better quality of life. And I think that policies that are geared towards creating opportunity for economic growth ought to be our top priority. This is not so much a political thought, but an economic one. How do you generate economically? What's the framework whereby everyone has more opportunities for growth? And I think the testimony of history is, is, is where there's more freedom. Where, well, there's, and, where, where there's more opportunity. But you also temper that with, with talking about a certain amount of virtue and, and morality that, you know, you place a high value on. And in a free market, that isn't always the case. Um, you know, I remember a time when I was much younger where Basically, people had an attitude that if I'm doing well, everybody does well. Yeah, my, my response is that it's imperative that we not make the mistake of believing that perfection and utopia is possible here. So there will be greedy people, there will be you know, self-interested people that um, have a callous disregard for the needs of others, even in a free enterprise. But we're only talking about two options here, either greater freedom or greater central planning. It's one or the other. 
and and I don't believe that the greed of the central planner is superior to the greed of the entrepreneur. Ultimately, what I desire is that Berkian vision, the self-interest of the entrepreneur who makes more money by serving his the needs of humanity better. He cannot make a dollar unless he has served the need of his fellow man through a good or a service he provides. There are market forces that limit the bad, ver- the bad vices of humanity, but they're not perfect. But then when we marry those things to a greater moral foundation, greater character, greater mediating institutions, then I think we get the recipe for my full vision of a free and virtuous society. And so while I do um, believe that the state's attempt to uh, disintermediate self-interest is highly ill-advised and has worked out disastrously throughout history, um, I most certainly believe that we have a more prosperous society when we foster both free markets and greater character building, greater virtue. That's why it's the last chapter of my book, is I think virtue and discipline have got to be foundational at what we're advocating in, in the vision for a free and virtuous society. How do we fund those things that, that everyone uses, um, infrastructure, education, um, those kinds of things that, you know, historically people chip in and, and you know, through taxes, uh, they they chip in, and the government puts that money out there to do those things on behalf of the people. But how do how do we fund those things? If um, or or is that the role of government? Well, it's interesting because you use the word government a couple times in there, and I and and I very much agree that there are certain functions of government. Yet in America, we have to use another modifier to the word government to know what you're referring to. Do we mean the federal government? Do we mean the state government? Do we mean city or county governments? Um, there is an economic principle to this, but it's largely thought of as sort of a political orientation. But I am a big believer in localism, in uh, what the early founders referred to as federalism. But even in uh, Catholic theology, people know as subsidiarity. Um, I want greater resources into education. But I think that locally, school choice provides a lot of that. If there's local government taxation that's providing a public school option, that could be available. But having availability for uh, vouchers and tax credits and things that might help people to go to a, a school that more is tailored to their own family's needs. Um, so the more local choice you have, I think the greater result, greater outcome infrastructure there's certainly some infrastructure projects that are in the domain of federal government hoover dam and and and, and things that have a national interest uh, highways and and uh, things of that nature uh, but then of course a lot of what we refer to as infrastructure is very local cities and townships and counties can chip in so there's a rule for taxation um, I don't attempt in the book, I'm not ambitious enough to lay out exactly what those principles need to be case by case, but the broad high-level principle, in my opinion, is uh, you know, I'm not an a anarchist or libertarian. I think that in a, a civil society, there needs to be that sort of social order that allows for things like infrastructure and technology. 
But do I have a pretty strong bias towards those things being localized where possible? I certainly do. Well, and, and it's funny because you, you said something, and I'm, we're all used to hearing this uh, federal dollars, state dollars, and, and local dollars. And I, I have to admit, David, I always snicker a little bit when I hear that because the dollars are all coming from the same place. Well, they certainly are, but the difference is that there's a lot more control on the dollars that come from the local place. And so uh, the way in which things are federally funded, uh, very few people think about their income tax dollars being able to have an impact into the federal spending initiatives. But on a local level, there is that ability to have real ownership in your community you know about the potholes you're driving over. And if you don't like the roads improving after you're paying your local taxes, your property taxes, that, you know, each city has its own funding mechanisms, then, then you know, people wine and dine with their city council people. They, they serve on the school boards with them. They see them at the gym or a PTA meetings. You know, you have that subsidiarity advantage. And so even though the dollars are all coming from your checkbook and my checkbook, the fact of the matter is that people demand more accountability at a local level than they do on a federal level, and that's exactly what our founding fathers predicted. David, I feel like we're just getting started and we're almost out of time. Um, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. David, do you have a website? I sure do. So I um, have created a website for the book called No Free Lunch Economics, nofreelunchaconomics.com. And then at that website, not only will people see all kinds of info about the book and, and resources and information, but then there they have um, all sorts of ways to get a hold of me and my, my other writings and investment work and social media and so forth. So that's the easiest uh, kind of single way to, to go about doing it, nofreelunchaconomics.com. Well, David, thanks so much for spending this time with me and sharing your thoughts with me and the listeners. Uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you for your very thoughtful questions. I enjoyed the conversation. Take care. That was uh, David Bonson. He is the um, founder, managing partner, and CIO, Chief Investment Officer of the Bonson Group, and uh, author of a new book called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had frequently demonstrated a quick and ready wit. But his audience at the 1962 White House Correspondents' Dinner was unprepared for the high humor he revealed that night. It was shortly after his now-famous clash with the steel industry in which the industry had announced and then rescinded a steel price increase. I have a few opening announcements. <laughs> First, the sudden and arbitrary action of the officers of this organization in increasing the price of dinner tickets by two... <laughs> by $2.50 over last year constitutes a wholly unjustifiable defiance of the public interest. If this increase is not rescinded, but is imitated by the gridiron, radio, TV, and other dinners, it will have a serious impact on the entire economy of this city. In this serious hour in our nation's history, when newsmen are awakened in the middle of the night to be given a front-page story. When expense accounts are being scrutinized by the Congress. When correspondents are required to leave their families for long and lonely weekends at Palm Beach. The American people will find it hard to accept this ruthless decision made by a tiny handful of executives. <laughs> Whose only interest is the pursuit of pleasure. I am hopeful that the Women's Press Club will not join this price rise and will thereby force a rescission. I'm uh, sure... I speak in behalf of all of us in expressing our thanks and very best wishes to Benny Goodman and his group, Miss Gwen Burden and Bob Force, Miss Sally Ann Howes, Mr. Reed, who has some talent, but uh, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Peter Sellers. I, I have arranged for them to appear next week on the United States Steel Hour. <laughs> Actually, uh, I didn't do it. Bobby did it, but uh, we're going <laughs> Like uh, members of Congress, I have been, during the last few days over the Easter holiday, back in touch with my constituents and uh, seeing how they felt. And frankly, I've come back to Washington from Palm Beach, and I'm against my entire program. Where'd you... This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
side Well, I just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car That the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Won the war. A crowd of people turned away. But I just had to look, having read the book. I love to turn. I noticed I was late Grab my coat, grab my hat Made the books and seconds flat By my well says and I had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream
Tom Sumner Program.com comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! <laughs>